Warning, the following show contains explicit language. Certain people should not listen to this show, such as children and panty-waist adults who cry like 12-year-old little girls when they hear profanity. Welcome, my friends, to the Dr. Reality Podcast. I'm Dave Champion. There is an odd narrative coming out of some of the black community claiming that the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, is all about slavery. So, is that valid? Partly valid, partly invalid, not valid at all? Let's find out. Let's start with this. Whether it was 1776, 1781, 1791, all key dates in the foundation and the forming of the United States, it was never presumed by anyone that people could not own firearms, that the government had the authority to say you can't have a firearm because firearms were absolutely essential part of survival at the time, not just for man-to-man sort of conflicts, criminals, brigands on the road, and so forth, but hunting. You had to have a firearm if you were going to live successfully in that era. With that said, that ideal that I just spoke of did not apply to the vast majority of black people on the North American continent. I have to say something that's pretty ugly right here and now, but it's important to lay the historical foundation when we're going to talk about something like the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms. In the minds of the vast majority of the white population in what was prior to the revolution of the 13 colonies and after the revolution of 13 independent nations, and then eventually the states of the union. Okay, so all those white people, the vast majority of them, did not consider people with black skin to be human beings in the same sense that a white person saw themselves as a human being. Now, that's really ugly. I find that incredibly revolting, but it is a historic truth. So we have to make sure that we acknowledge that as we move forward so that we understand when we're talking about development of certain things within that time frame, we need to understand the mindset of the people who lived at that time, at that place, and the players in all of this. When the 13 colonies pronounced their independence from the King of England, They became, at that moment, 13 independent nations. It's hard for us to think about it like that today, as I sit here talking to you in 2021, because that's that's like, like Roman history. That's ancient stuff. We don't even think about stuff like that. But that was the mindset of the people who lived at the time. So a citizen of Massachusetts, after Massachusetts had announced it was no longer part of the British Empire, the citizens of Massachusetts didn't consider themselves citizens of the United States. They didn't consider themselves Americans. They considered themselves solely citizens of the state of Massachusetts. And not only did the average person who lived in Massachusetts consider themselves as such, the leadership considered themselves as such as well. They had the nation of Massachusetts, the nation of Georgia, the nation of New York. None of them considered that they were one uh, congregated mass as a nation. No one thought of that. They were all independent nations. That had some consequences in their minds. Virtually every white person living in the 13 colonies that then became the 13 independent nations had lots of family living in Europe, and they were very, very knowledgeable about European history. 
And what was the history of Europe? It wouldn't be far off if you just wanted to say, as far as a big picture statement concerning Europe, it was a bunch of neighboring states killing each other constantly for thousands of years. That is what they did in Europe. Neighboring states created armies, had conflicts with other neighboring states, marched in or got marched upon, and got killed. I mean, (laughs) that is pretty much the story of Europe. And that's what the colonists, and then the citizens of the 13 independent states after they declared their independence, that's what they understood happened when you had uh, independent nations that shared lots of common borders like the 13 independent states. So they had that concern as independent nations. I know I keep using that phrase, but it's really important to understand their mindset. So I'm repeating it to you so it can get into your noggin. Independent nations. So these 13 independent nations that shared a lot of common border, they were concerned that they were going to end up exactly like Europe had ended up for thousands of years with these cross-border wars constantly. Now, they hoped that wasn't going to happen, and they took some steps to try and make sure that wouldn't happen, but that was foremost in their mind, especially when we're discussing militia. Imagine that you were one of the top movers and shakers in, say, Virginia, which, after the Declaration of Independence, was now an independent nation. And you look to the nations to the north of you, and you look to the nations to the south of you, you thought to yourself, what if we end up in an armed conflict with them? We need to be able to defend the nation of Virginia, which is how they thought of themselves. So militia was considered absolutely essential for the defense of the nation. It was, as opposed to a standing army, which they could not afford, the militia was this each independent nation's way of defending themselves if this grand project to create some sort of union failed and all of these independent nations went to war with one another. They needed to have some structure of military presence, and that is what today we look back on and call militia. The States of the Union declared their independence from King George III in 1776. But the first experiment with some sort of a union under the Articles of Confederation wasn't ratified until 1781. Now, for all of those years, they were actually at war with Great Britain. So, as you can imagine, their primary focus was on defeating the king. However, virtually all of the leaders of those colonies, now turned independent nations, were thinking ahead. What happens when this is over? Am I going to have a military problem with the state to my north, to the state to my west, to the state to my south, and so forth? That was a big part of their concern because of their frame of reference. All all of the white citizens, at some point or other, their families coming over here from Europe and being very well versed in European history. That was on their mind quite a bit as they looked ahead. As it turned out, the Articles of Confederation were considered insufficient to the task. In other words, a lot of those concerns didn't get resolved by the Articles of Confederation. As the representatives of the state went to the Constitutional Convention to discuss what we now know as the U.S. Constitution about framing that out, they still had those concerns. They were like, this is a grand experiment. What if it doesn't work, right? The Articles of Confederation were already found wanting, insufficient for the purpose. So they were thinking, yeah, if this doesn't work out, what if we go down that road where we're going to be like Europe, constantly marching armies across the border to attack the other uh, independent nations? So going all the way into the Constitutional Convention, these states still had the mindset that they needed to have their own independent national military presence 
the militia. The Second Amendment does not grant anyone anything. Okay, well, kind of sort of does after the 14th Amendment. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, so stay with me and I'll cover that. However, at the time it was ratified, the Second Amendment did not grant anyone anything. All it did was it barred the federal government from what the states feared, which is the federal government would take a standing army and march into these independent nations that still had question marks about whether this whole damn thing was going to work, march in and enforce an end to the state's militia. So the states wanted to make sure that the federal government knew in the form of the Second Amendment, ah, that is not an authority we are giving you. We retained the authority to have a militia even after we've created you, the federal government, and we want you to know there's nothing you can constitutionally do about our militia. That's all the Second Amendment was intended to do. It was an expression that the states weren't confident this was all going to work out. I should also mention in passing, if a state's constitution doesn't say otherwise, states are free to get rid of their militia. I know it's going to anger a lot of people, but unless the constitution of that state says that the militia is something that the government must maintain, then the states can get rid of their militias, and there's nothing about the Second Amendment that blocks that because the Second Amendment is a prohibition on the federal government, not on your state government. I'm going to talk about the slavery angle, if there is one, here in a moment. Um, But as you can see, the interests of the movers and shakers in the 13 independent nations had absolutely nothing to do with slavery, uh, at least not when they were dealing with the formation of a union. When we talk about the Second Amendment, none of that had anything to do with slavery. That was about them being able to defend their nation from the other 12 nations. Might a slave state have used its militia to put down a slave uprising? That's pretty much the claim of those in the black community who want us to believe the Second Amendment is all about slavery. Their thing is the militia only existed to put down slave insurrections, which as we've covered here, no, that's not true. Could a state, a slave state, use the militia to put down a slave revolt? Sure. I have a car in the garage. I can use that car at three o'clock in the morning if there's a medical emergency to take someone to the emergency room. But I don't own the car for that purpose. The fact that something can be used for X does not mean it exists for that reason. And that's certainly the case with the Second Amendment. I said a moment ago that the Second Amendment didn't grant anybody anything until after the 14th Amendment. In fact, well after the 14th Amendment, but within the light of the 14th Amendment. I really wish there were a lot more people in the black community in the United States who understood the 14th Amendment. And and those people who, I guess, are considered spokesmen for blacks in America and so forth, even if they're only self-promoted spokesmen, uh, they're not telling their own community what I'm about to share with you here. And and this is, I think, such a critical part of history. I think it's a real shame that the people upon who it influences, even to this day, are unaware of it. So at the end of the Civil War, the Southern states had been defeated. They were under military occupation. They were no longer considered states of the Union. And yet there were black people who were born there and the constitutions of those states did not make them citizens. 
and the Constitution of the United States did not make anybody citizens at that time. Citizenship was derived 100% from your birth upon the land in a state of the union. So in other words, if you were a citizen of the state of Alabama, you were called euphemistically a U.S. citizen. If you were born in Maine, you were euphemistically called a U.S. citizen, and that's discussed in the infamous Dred Scott case. By the way, anybody who's not actually read the decision written by Tanny in Dred should. Uh, is it a moral abomination? It is. Is it legally factual? Yeah, spot on. One of the most legally factual, historically factual decisions ever put forth by the United States Supreme Court. So I encourage you to read Dred if you haven't done so already. So Dred established that the term uh, citizen of the United States is used in the opening part of the Constitution was a euphemism for people born in the states of the Union. So your citizenship came from that birth upon the land of the state of the Union, yet the freed black slaves, those constitutions of those states didn't grant them citizenship. So Congress needed a solution, and the solution was the 14th Amendment. What the 14th Amendment did is it created another second class of citizen. And yes, it is second on the timeline. It is also second in, uh, it is a distant second as far as the rights that a 14th Amendment citizen has. If you'd like to see the sum total of rights before the Supreme Court began the uh, incorporation doctrine, made it up out of whole cloth, by the way, and just started doing it. But if you want to go back pre-incorporation doctrine and look at the very limited rights a 14th Amendment citizen has, go to 42 U.S.C. section 1981 and read, I think it's six. There are six rights that 14th Amendment citizens have that are protected by Congress. That's it, right? Six. Uh, and so who is covered by the 14th Amendment? Well, According again to the United States Supreme Court, not me, any black person who was brought to the United States for the purpose of slavery and held in slavery and then freed after the Civil War and all of their posterity to this very moment as I'm talking to you are all 14th Amendment citizens. Their primary form of citizenship is federal. It is they are citizens of Congress. They are citizens of Washington, D.C., if you want to phrase it that way. That is their primary citizenship. White people born pre-Civil War, during the Civil War, after the Civil War, they have what's called du jour citizenship. Now, I know a lot of people are listening to this going, this guy's out of his mind. You know, I always say, do not believe me. Do the research, and you will find out this is 100% factually, legally, constitutionally accurate, and every single justice sitting on the Supreme Court for the last 150 years has known it, okay? So we need to take stock of that. Now that we understand what the 14th Amendment did, and the incorporation doctrine is where the court came along and said, okay, so if we go to 14, uh, 42 U.S.C. 1981, we don't find that you have the right to be secure in your papers, persons, and property. Okay, so we're going to say that the Fourth, the fourth Amendment that secures you in those things, we're going to say the Fourth Amendment, we're going to pronounce it, that it now is a right held by 14th Amendment citizens. Uh, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. Okay, different set of case, different set of facts, different set of people. Okay, so now we're going to say that the Fifth Amendment is now what you see in the Fifth Amendment, which is actually originally just a bar on the government screwing with, honestly, to be factual, white citizens. Okay, 
Now we're going to say that not, that's no longer just a prohibition against these other white folks. We're going to say it is now, we're going to inculcate it as rights for 14th Amendment citizens. That is the, incor- the, the incorporation doctrine. Again, do not believe me. Look it up. As far as the Second Amendment is concerned, it had never been incorporated uh, by the Supreme Court into the for- rights held by 14th Amendment citizens until Heller and McDonald, which is what, 2008, if I remember correctly? Okay, so from the time the 14th Amendment was ratified, so was that 1866 or 67, okay, all the way to 2008, 14th Amendment citizens had no right to keep and bear arms. It was the Heller decision that said outside the states of the Union, yeah, 14th Amendment citizens now are given. We are telling you now they have Second Amendment right, where they have the right to keep and bear arms. And then McDonald said within a state of the union, uh, 14th Amendment citizens do have a right to keep and bear arms. Okay, So that's how this all came about. And I find it to be a travesty, right? Because I believe that all human beings have unalienable rights. The complete set from the moment they're born, it is a part of our natural being. Now, mind you, that this is a matter of principle, a matter of belief, and you don't get to have unalienable rights unless you want to fight for them. And sometimes that includes, as they did in the Revolutionary War, that includes killing people who say, no, you don't have any unalienable rights. So, You know, I don't care how much melanin you have in your skin, what nation you were born in, your ancestors. When you're born here in the United States, you have unalienable rights. So the fact that these 14th Amendment says, man, what a raw deal they were given. But honestly, when the 14th Amendment was passed, probably 99% of the population of the United States, the white part, 99% of the white population of the United States felt that blacks were not equal. So the 14th Amendment was never designed to make them equal. It was just designed to give them some bare bones fundamental rights. God, what a travesty. So (laughs) with that crazy rant out of the way, back to the Second Amendment and slavery. Okay, I get that there's this movement afoot now with certain people, certain segment of the black community to try and make, try and cast virtually everything about U.S. history in terms of slavery. I, I mean, I get it. They didn't have a voice for a long time. Now they feel they do have a voice, and so they're voicing whatever they want to voice. And in this case, it happens to be utterly ridiculous. The Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, had absolutely nothing to do with slavery. Could a militia be used to put down a slave insurrection? It could. But that had nothing to do with the existence of the militia, and it had absolutely nothing to do with why the states wanted the Second Amendment placed within the Constitution in the Bill of Rights. You may have heard some things in this presentation you have never heard before, right? So, and they're all factual. And again, do not believe me. I always tell people, please don't believe me. Because if if I ask you to believe me, then what you're going to do is you're going to say, that guy's a nutcase. But if I say, don't believe me, go look it up. And you go look it up, you're going to say, wow, I thought Champion was a nutball. And he's, it turns out every word out of his mouth was absolutely factually accurate. So I want to give you a couple of resources that you can go to to get a whole bunch of really fascinating, intriguing facts. Go to drreality.news and grab yourself a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Myths. Grab yourself a copy of Body Science. There's a couple of other things there. They will be, you have my word, they will be the most fascinating books you have ever read in your life. And you will find out 
truths such as I shared with you here today that the establishment has kept hidden because it is disadvantageous to the agenda of the establishment. Now, I don't know where you come from, but my thing is if the establishment is trying to suppress something, trying to keep us from knowing it, yeah, it's probably something we really, really, really want to know. And in Income Tax, Shattering the Mist, and Body Science, you will find out exactly what they've been suppressing, what they've been trying to keep you from being aware of, and why.